Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share personal stories of God's love. I'm Robin, and I'm here with Katie and Lindy, and today we bring you Sarah's story. Sarah is from our Auburn community, where she shared in a live gathering there about the loss of their son and their only child. But in her sharing, she really talks about the purpose of his mm-hmm, life. Mm-hmm. That's right. We titled her story, actually, The Hope We Needed. And you're going to hear about that as you listen to her story. But honestly, it's really about the hope that we all need. And so as she spoke through her story, I really thought this would be a great opportunity to have a discovery guide offered on Patreon, just talking about you know the reminder that our hope is not of this world. And that each of us have a purpose while we are here. Porter gives us that in his story, as Sarah shares about him, but also just getting an eternal perspective and how important that is. So that's found on Patreon today. Um, You can find that in our show notes. We want to thank Sarah as she begins to tell us her story of Porter and the impact he had, not just on her, but on so many people. Here she is. We wanted to give you a quick reminder of three ways that you can support Storytellers Live. Number one is through Venmo. We are now accepting donations at Storytellers Live. Number two is our Patreon community. You can join for five or ten dollars a month and you receive extra content. Bible study that goes along with our episodes and then we actually post extra stories and a story within the story which is more information about our storyteller. And then lastly you can purchase Discover Your Story which is an eight-week Bible study that's appropriate for small groups or personal study for $15 on our website at storytellerslive.org. Thank you so much for supporting Storytellers Live. We could not do this without you. I'll start out by saying thank you so much for coming tonight. I know that we all have busy lives and could be at home uh, with our families tonight or sitting at home watching a Netflix show, which I'm guilty of as well. Uh, But you came here tonight to hear my story, so I am so thankful for that. A lot of familiar faces, some that I've never met before. I hope that the story of my son's life will affect you in a way that, in a positive way. It was tough, it was hard, but I feel like his story is worth sharing. Um, When Brooke asked me to do Storytellers, it was actually a year ago, then COVID hit and everything went crazy. But she asked me to summarize my story in one sentence. I'm going to read it for you, and I want you to think about it as I tell my story tonight. I said, How the terminal diagnosis of our only child, Porter, turned from heartache, fear, and frustration to an incredible understanding for what God had planned for him during his short time on earth. And I'll tell you, I I have not probably thought about my entire story in over five years. I haven't said it out loud in over five years. I've said small pieces of it, but not thought of it as a whole. So it's kind of been therapeutic for me to think about it and write it down and actually say it out loud. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do that. I also have one Bible verse that I would like for y'all to think about as I tell my story. It's actually on Porter's headstone uh, in Town Creek Cemetery. It's kind of one that a lot of people don't really know. Michael and I picked it out together, and it's something that I think resembles Porter's life. It's 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. 
for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Just think about that as we go through the story. I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of my husband and I. We are actually from the same hometown, little town north of Birmingham, Coleman, Alabama. We both grew up in the church, always had a relationship. Michael had a little bit more of a relationship with the church than I did. He actually, uh, his grandfather was a pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Coleman for over 40 years. So I think that he had a little bit more of a closer relationship with God growing up than I did, but we both had a relationship and were involved in the church. Uh, We decided to go to Auburn 2005. We both moved down here to go to school. Michael graduated in 2008 with a degree in forestry, and I graduated with an undergrad and master's in building science. We loved Auburn and knew this was exactly where we wanted to start our lives together. We decided to get married in between that short time from undergrad. There's a two-week time frame before I started my master's, and we said, I will just go, we'll just get married real quick, go on a quick honeymoon, and, and kind of check that off of the list. So we got married May 9th, 2009. We'll actually celebrate our 12-year wedding anniversary next month, which is hard to believe. It's crazy. It goes by so fast. I'll say this. There are a lot of people in here tonight that uh, I met at the church that we decided to attend. When we started our married life, that was something that we wanted to do. I mean, I think everybody's guilty whenever you're in college of kind of letting that slip. Even though we went to church when we were growing up, when you're in college, you kind of just get in that routine, and we were guilty of that. We did not end up going to church on a regular basis, but we wanted to find a place in town where we felt welcome. And so we went to several places in Opelika and in Auburn, and we decided that we would attend Auburn United Methodist Church. It's now called Auburn UMC. That's where we started going in 2010. And so at the time, I don't know, I guess this is because Michael's a morning person, we decided to go to the 8 o'clock church service. That's probably because he was wanted to do something else in the afternoon. But we, no, I'm, I'm not going to be negative here, but we were the youngest couple in attendance, so we stuck out a little bit. We had a regular, there are regular people that attended the church service. So, you know, you kind of waved and casually met them when you were there. One of them in particular was a man that would always sit in this exact same location. Uh, he always stood out to me because he would always have on a blazer or a nice shirt khaki pants, but he would always be wearing tennis shoes. And so Michael and I would casually wave and just, you know, I mean, in passing, introduce ourselves and, you know, hope we're doing well. Never thought anything else about it. So that was in 2010. Little did we know that God would have huge plans for us in the future. And it's only through his working that we actually ended up meeting. Second thing, some people in here uh, are in the Sunday school class that we decided to attend. We wanted to get, you know, have a deeper relationship with God and understand, and that's the only way that I feel like that we could was to find a Sunday school class. So we visited a few. We decided to go with the Family Essentials class. Debbie Smalley is here. She was one of our teachers. And also what was unique about that class was we were actually one of the only people in that class that did not have kids at the time. We were welcomed with open arms, and it just felt right. We said, this is exactly where we need to be. We, there was nothing about that class that we did not like. We loved it every single time. And so it was a fairly large class, but we fit in pretty well and made some lasting friendships there. I say all of that because it will come back in a full circle in a minute. Uh, Michael and I settled into married life in, uh, in 2012, early 2012. found out that I was pregnant. My pregnancy for the most part, was pretty straightforward. There was nothing, 
any kind of red flags or anything that happened during pregnancy. And I ended up delivering a healthy seven-pound baby boy on September 14th, 2012. Named him Porter Ross. Porter was actually a reference my husband likes to hunt. So it was a piece of property he hunted whenever he was young called Porterland. And he decided to use that name as his first name. And Ross is a family name from my side of the family. He had the blondest hair that I've ever seen. My hair is not naturally blonde. I have a lot of gray now, so that's why it's blonde, but not naturally. Not, but, and he had the bluest eyes that I had ever seen. Plenty of jokes went around about, oh, is that really your kid? Yes, we've had every genetic test known to man done, so yes, he is. But he didn't look anything like Michael or I. One of the questions that's always asked at the hospital is, who's your pediatrician going to be? And so it was a no-brainer for us because the Sunday school class that we had chosen to go to, David Smalley was the teacher, and he happened to be a pediatrician in town. So that was, of course, write him down. He's going to be our pediatrician. And, of course, relationship, he comes into play a couple of times down the line, too. I think that as you're having your first child, it was a steep learning curve for us. Uh, We lived in Auburn. Both of our families still lived in Coleman, so we really didn't have a lot of help. So there was a lot of... A lot of sleepless nights, but honestly, uh, looking back, it, it, it really wasn't that bad. I think that you go to checkup after checkup when they're little. Everything checked out fine for Porter at the six-week visit. Then you go to the one-month checkup, and I think there's a two- or three-month checkup. And what started to happen was in that first two or three months of his life, every now and then I would notice his eyes would start bouncing back and forth. Uh, It wasn't a continuous thing. It would be something where if you had to really focus on his face, you would see it. Uh, I tried to show, I told Michael to look and see if he saw anything. He really couldn't see it. So I said, well, I'll just go ahead. Whenever we go to our four-month checkup with David, I'll just tell him. Hopefully he won't think I'm crazy. I'll just ask him if he sees it or if he sees anything that he thinks might be wrong. So went to the checkup. Everything was fine. Uh, Dr. Smalley said that there wasn't really anything that he thought on initial glance that could be wrong. He's still so small. We'll just wait and see as he develops. And I think that there was something that sparked in David's mind because I want to say it's because he, you know, had a, he just thought about us maybe a little more than, than others because we were in his Sunday school class. But he called me a few days later and he said, Hey, why don't you just go ahead? I've got a friend that's a pediatric ophthalmologist in Birmingham. Why don't you just go see him? Let's just make sure there's nothing wrong. And I said, okay, well, that'll that'll give me a little bit of a sigh of relief. We'll make sure nothing's wrong, and then everything's going to be okay. Now, remember, looking at him, you cannot tell that anything is wrong. He's still checking off most of the milestones. He's having a little bit of, you know, grabbing at things, has some, some issues I'm thinking with his eyes, but otherwise everything's fine. So David said, you have an appointment a week later in Birmingham. So I, I remember like vividly talking to my parents and of course their reaction is always oh, everything's going to be okay because that's what parents do everything's going to be okay I just knew though I said there's something deep down inside of me that says something is wrong and you want to push that away push that away but I knew something was wrong and I don't I, maybe that's some other's intuition I don't know but I felt it I think that that week was very hard because I think you go through the the cycle of Okay, what's the worst case scenario? Well, the worst case scenario is he can't see. The worst case scenario is he's not going to be able to play baseball. He's not going to be able to go hunting with his dad. He's not going to be able to do all these things. I said, but that's like worst case scenario. That's got to be worst case scenario. As for we go to our uh, ophthalmologist appointment. Uh, Porter's four months old at the time, so he's still relatively small. 
The doctor was extremely nice, extremely talkative. And in my head, I'm just thinking, I'm praying. I'm like, please tell me he can see. Please tell me he can see. And so we go in his office and he waves some cards in front of his face. And I said, can he see? And he said, yeah, yeah, he can see. And I said, oh. I was like, great. I was like, he can see. And I said, okay, uh, that's, that's all I needed to know. What else do you want to do? And he said, I'd like to dilate his eyes and take a look and just make sure. So dilate his eyes. You have to sit out in the waiting room for about 15 minutes. And we went back in. And I remember there was a drastic change in his demeanor. So remember, he's really talkative and easygoing, friendly. He looked in Porter's eyes and it was dead silence. And I remember saying, what's wrong? And he's just sitting over there typing on his computer. And he said, well, he said, Porter has cherry red spots in the back of his retina. And I was like, well, I don't know what that means. I was like, what does that mean? And he said, well, I'm not sure exactly what it means, but... I need you to go over to UAB genetics office immediately. And so we said, okay, let's go. So we pack up, we drive over there, we meet a doctor. She says that cherry red spots are a telltale sign of 15 different uh, genetic disorders. And we, she said, oh, it could be nothing, but it could be one of these 15 different disorders. And we said, okay, well, he looks normal. I mean, we just found out that he can see. Uh, I'm not sure what else it could be. And she said, well, I need you to go to Children's now because we're going to test for three of the, there's 15, so we can test for three of them at a time. Because he's so small, you can only get so much blood, so much urine, and take so many x-rays at a time. So then we go from the ophthalmologist's office to the geneticist's office to Children's Hospital. So I'm like, this is not, I mean, you know, the whirlwind of this is not good. This is not really, I mean, it's a great hospital, but that's not where you want to be. And so... She said, we're going to test for the first three. If those three are negative, you'll come back. We'll test for another three, and so on and so forth. She said, we'll get the test back in a week. The first three that we're going to test for are Sandhoff's, Tay-Sachs, and gangliosidosis, which we all know he ended up having. Test for those three, I remember that week, was absolutely brutal. She told us that we did not need to look online. If we looked online, it would just, it would be devastating. We said, okay, well, we're not going to look online because in my head, I'm still thinking worst case scenarios that he can't see. And so that week, I remember just praying and thinking, maybe, maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe nothing's, maybe all of this is just a, just a fluke. Those cherry red spots will go away and everything will be fine. Well, I happened to be at work that day and I remember exactly where I was. I was at Pat Wingfield's house, who also happens to go to church at Auburn Methodist. And I got the phone call. It was the genetic counselor. She said that Porter tested positive for gangliosidosis. And I said, okay, well, what does that mean? And she said, I need you to come to Birmingham tomorrow. And, you know, she told us to bring some paperwork and all kinds of stuff. That was February 5th, 2013. And all I remember from that day was I called Michael and told him exactly what she said. And he looked it up online and he said, Sarah... All that it says is that that Porter's not going to live to be two years old. It's a terminal disease. And I said, well, the worst case scenario is that he was going to just not be able to see and that we could have to do something, have to do some kind of surgery, do something. And he said, no. He's like, it says that they don't live to be more than two years old. And so that's probably why she told us not to look at anything online. But next day we go to Birmingham. I remember sitting there and her checking him out and thinking, how in the world can I look at this baby and you're telling me that he's four months old and he's not going to live to be two? Like, 
It just blew my mind. What's also bad about it is, I told myself I wasn't going to cry. She said that it's an inherited genetic disorder. So layman's terms, that means that Michael and I are carriers. So there is a 25% chance every time that we have a child that that child will be affected like Porter is. 50% chance that they will be a carrier like Michael and I are, who obviously we don't show symptoms. Or 25% chance that they wouldn't be affected at all. So it's a gamble. It's a roll of the dice. We just happened to not not win on the first try. She also went into uh, a little bit more detail about what we could expect. She said that it is a recessive disorder. So that means that he will peak at a certain point and then regress with his abilities. She said that he probably will need a feeding tube. He is probably going to have seizures and... He probably won't be able to see at a certain age or be able to hear, but everything is just, there aren't very many kids that have it, so she couldn't tell me for sure what was going to happen. I think the hardest part leaving that day was that there was no hope. I said, well, we can't go, there's not a, there's not a drug that we can try. There's not a, like, we can't go to this doctor in a foreign country or like, it doesn't matter, like, what can we do? She's like, there's nothing. Here's your printed piece of paper from the internet explaining all these things that happen but I'm sorry, you just need to take him home and take care of him. And I said, oh my gosh, it's 2013. Like there has to be something that we can do. I mean, even if you get a diagnosis of cancer, there's you, you have something that you can try. Like you have to have something to hold on to. There was nothing. And so that was hard. I think that that was probably uh, the hardest part was just kind of the reality of why you asked, like, God, why? Like, why, why is this little boy who's never done anything wrong in his entire life not going to be able to live past two, not going to be able to see, not going to be able to hear, not going to be able to eat, all of these different things. Like, why? And one of the scriptures that Michael and I always used to read was Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have called according to his purpose. And I think that that's a scripture that we tried to repeat over and over, just trying to understand why. And I think that's the part where I was frustrated and I was scared. Uh, I wasn't angry. I just was more frustrated than anything because I wanted to do something. I wanted to to just try something. If somebody tells me something's wrong, then tell me what I can do to fix it. It's kind of my personality, but that wasn't an option. So we started to kind of get our feet back under us and started looking around for somebody. Somebody's got to have some information that we can kind of grasp onto. Michael looked online found something called the NTSAD. So it's the National Tay-Sachs and Allied Disease Association. So it's basically allied diseases of Tay-Sachs. Tay-Sachs and, and GM1, which is what Porter had, was their sister diseases. So they also kind of, they're, they're so rare that they kind of group them in an, in an allied disease category. Probably not saying that all right. That's layman's terms of how all that goes. They had a great online network. And so we said, well, why don't we reach out to them? We'll say, okay, we're newly diagnosed. Is there anybody close to us that potentially has what Porter has that we can connect with? And they took our information and they send out newsletters. So a couple weeks later, we just, we received our first newsletter. And so uh, they happened to put us in the wrong state. And so Michael said, well, we want to make sure we're in the right state. Why don't you call them and, and we'll, we'll talk to them, make sure they get us in. You know, we're in Alabama. We're not in Arkansas, which is where they put us. So Michael called up there. The lady said, oh, do you know about the research that's going on at the vet school about with the cats? And Michael said, well, no, I don't know about the cats. And she was like, uh, just talking about the cats. And he said, well, we don't know anything about that. And he said, 
well, thank you for letting us know. We're going to look into it. So looked online, lovely internet. Michael Googled, uh, I think it was just gangliosidosis research, Auburn Veterinarian School. It popped up and said that there was this man that had been doing research for, oh gosh, total of almost 20-something years. And he sent me a picture of that man. Guess who that man was? The man with the tennis shoes at Auburn United Methodist Church that we would sit and say hello to every Sunday at the 8 a.m. service. And I literally told myself, I was like, if that's not a sign that this is the way that we need to go, we need to meet these people. Like, we have to meet him and figure out what this research is. And so Porter was six months old whenever we went up to the Scott Ritchie Research Center. The man's name that was head of the research at the time is Dr. Douglas Martin. Goes by Doug. I still call him Douglas, though. So he had been doing research up there. He actually did his... I think dissertation, whatever he was in school up there years ago on GM1 and continued to do research. I think that whenever he invited us up there, I randomly cold called him and left him a message on his answering machine. I was probably like, who is this crazy lady? But he invited us up there immediately. And I remember going up there. There were, there's actually a picture of us the first time we're sitting on the table the first time that we met all of them. I don't even remember how many people. There were probably 15 or 20 people that we met that day. And they gave us a tour of everything that was going on up there. And basically what it is, is they had been developing a gene therapy in cats to treat GM1. So they would inject cats with this treatment. It's a one-time treatment. They originally were doing it as a direct brain injection. They now have moved on to an IV injection. Uh, but they were treating these cats, and we saw cats that were treated and cats that were not treated, and it was a night and day difference. Cats normally wouldn't live to be eight months old, and one of the ones that we first time we met him, I think he was five or six uh, at the time, and absolutely nothing did not look like anything was wrong with that cat. And I think that meeting them that day, and Porter only being six months old, we said, what do we need to do? This is the hope that we needed. This is exactly where we need to be. What do you need us to do? Like, what can we do? And he said that he needed funding. And so the the next step for them was to take that to a clinical trial. Now, we were realistic about the fact that getting to that point was going to take years. Uh, we knew that Porter would not experience, would not be able to benefit from that treatment, but we knew that we wanted to do everything that we could to try to promote it and, and to raise funds. And so Michael, uh, backtracked just a little bit, he had an idea, remember we said we were told that Porter was only going to have two, potentially only live to be two, and we said, well, we're, we don't, we're not only going to celebrate two birthdays, so we said we're going to celebrate his birthday every month. Uh, so we started that at five months. And so every month that we celebrated his birthday, it would be a small little gathering or it would be a bigger one. But we said on his real birthday at one years old, two years old, three years old, however he ends up living, we're going to do a fundraiser. And so we're going to raise money and we're going to promote the research. We're going to put Porter's face out there and try to raise funds so that we can get this to a clinical trial. To date, I think we've raised $200,000 towards that over the last several years. And it's honestly a godsend that we've been able to do that. And we've helped so many families. So I think that that's meeting them that day was the hope that we needed. I think that was the transition of when we realized that Porter's life had meaning. It's not just take the piece of paper home and take care of your child. It's more, this is his purpose in life. 
I, I am going to go into a little bit of detail about the regression of the disease, just a little bit. Um, there's some key people that interacted with us over his life and some things that happened that only God had a hand in, in those things. But I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But Porter probably peaked at about nine months. Um, he did roll over. He did sit up a little bit on his own with assistance. Uh, he ate regular baby food. He did, you know, kind of ran around in his walker for a little while. So those things were normal, but then the regression started. And the one thing that I think that we were scared the most of were the seizures. We had gone to a neurologist up at Children's and we had had the meetings and conversations about what to expect. Uh, but when Porter was about 17 months old, that's when he had his first seizure. So I remember I was up and down all night because he thought he was teething and, and doing the normal thing. And I picked him up. It was about five o'clock in the morning and trying to give him his medicine. And all of a sudden it started and I just knew by holding him what was happening. And I ran into the bedroom where Michael was sleeping and I just said, I was like, he's having a seizure, he's having a seizure. And we knew what we were supposed to do. But in that moment when it's happening, you're terrified, just absolutely terrified. And he was turning blue and I just was, it was just awful. So Michael called 911 and the ambulance came. I think it probably ended up lasting a little less than a minute, but, but we went to the emergency room. So we're in the emergency room and who do we call? pediatrician to tell him, hey, David, we're in the hospital. Just to let you know, he's had his first seizure, you know, just kind of giving him the information. He said, well, I'm coming to check on the babies in the morning or in a few minutes. I'm going to stop by and see you. We said, okay, thank you. So what they found out, though, in the meantime, was that Porter was basically aspirating. So when he was eating, he wasn't, he wasn't swallowing where it needed to go. It was going into his lungs. We didn't know that at the time. We were in the process of getting a G-tube, trying to check off the things that we needed to, but um, I didn't realize that that was the case. But So we had pneumonia from aspirating, and we had a treatment plan. David comes in that morning. I don't remember. It was probably like 8 o'clock or something. Checks on us, and he says, okay, I agree with the treatment plan. Porter's got pneumonia. Hopefully, we can just treat it with antibiotics, and, and we can you know get over this. I said, okay. It wasn't he did not round the corner in that emergency room and Porter went into his second seizure. At first we thought it was a febrile seizure on the first one. And we said, okay, if he just has one, maybe it's a febrile seizure. Maybe that's all that it is. Uh, that wasn't the case. So he went into a second seizure. It was one that lasted 15 minutes. At one point, I remember there were probably eight doctors and nurses over him. David was there, obviously. Uh, they pushed us aside. Um, I remember literally on my hands and knees in the floor of the hallway at the ER, just screaming and crying. And they couldn't get the seizure under control. And so you're sitting there and they push you away. And so you don't know what's going on. You're like, what is going on? What's going on? And so Michael said, we have to pray. We have to pray. And so I'm literally just on my knees and I'm like, we are just not ready to lose him now. There's too much that he has to do. And he's 17 months old. And I said, he's got to make it past two. And so Dr. Smalley happened to have all of the doctor's uh, information that we had at Children's. And so at EAMC, they don't really have a lot of babies that come in with seizures. And so they don't necessarily have all the information that they need to stop them. Well, David happened to be there and he had all of the doctor's information and was able to call them and get the dosage right to get the seizure under control. And I, I know that if he wouldn't have been there, I just don't think that Porter would have lived through that because they couldn't get it to stop. So 
That's another reason why I think David was placed in our lives, that there's no other reason why than he was there to save his life that day. So this started a whole new cycle of new, what I'll call a new routine. Uh, he was life flighted to children's, and we had to drive up there and follow. Couldn't ride in the, or excuse me, ride in the helicopter up there. And so we stayed there. We did end up getting a G-tube. Uh, and so he was able to eat easier after that, and it was a godsend to be able to do that. I think at around like two years old, we had another round of uh, going into the hospital, uh, and that's when we started oxygen on a daily basis. Uh, it just helped him out tremendously being able to have that every day. And we also, you know, we brought in hospice at about two and a half years old, uh, which remember, we've made it past the the printed out piece of paper that said he was gonna, wasn't going to live to be two years old. We're at two and a half now. And I remember seeing him just progressively get worse and just wanting to be able to help him in any way that we could, but there was nothing that we could do. And so for the last year, year and a half of his life, we kind of just made sure that he was comfortable. Uh, anything that we needed to do, uh, hospice helped out tremendously. They just helped us navigate the day-to-day struggles that he would have. There's one thing I'll interject. The last visit that we took Porter out on I don't know if any of y'all remember this, but there's a vapor wake dog program at the College of Veterinary Medicine. The bomb sniff, well, it's not a bomb sniffing dog, but vapor wake dogs. So they had called us and said, we'd like for Porter to come and meet the dog that we're naming after him. His name is going to be Heatherly. And we said, oh my goodness, are you serious? It's a little chocolate lab puppy. We took Porter out. This was about three months before he passed away. And we got to meet the dog and it just... That's just something that touched me so much that they thought about Porter in his life to name one of these dogs that can go and, I mean, it could be working in anywhere. And it's just for them to think about him and to ha- have that ability that they can name dogs after people and it means something, it's just really meant a lot to us. So Porter continued to fight. We celebrated 49 birthdays with him. Celebrating four real birthdays, but 49 birthdays, where you took the time to just stop and think, he made it another month, he made it another month, he made it another month. And he beat the odds. Um, the last week of his life, Michael and I were there every single day with him, 24 hours a day. And I held him when he took his last breath. Uh, that day was November 10th, 2016. It's hard to believe it was that long ago. <clears throat> but his life to us meant so much and just to be there in that moment I had I battled with going to work and not being there if something were to happen to him I would have regrets but it didn't it ended exactly the way that Michael and I had prayed for for years but I'll say this though the next chapter after Porter passed away was very tough I think that you go through the routine and you have somebody to take care of and you have this responsibility for so many years and then it's gone um, I mean, no offense, I guess you could take care of your husband, but I was like, I'm not, I'm over that. But I wanted to take care of somebody. I wanted to, to do that. I, I mean, even though it was hard, I just, I needed that. And so uh, Michael and I continued to go to church. I think friendships helped us through all of that too. But I would always find myself just going home after work and staying there. I wouldn't go anywhere. And I'm like, what am I doing? I'm just sitting here. But I can go and do anything. But I didn't know I didn't know what to do because I had done the same routine for so many years. So it was very hard to kind of start new. Uh, but we've done that. Also, since meeting Dr. Martin in 2013, golly, this just still blows my mind that this is happening. So 
Our goal, remember, was to spread the word about the research, and we continued to do that. We had we took a year off from our fundraisers after Porter passed away, but then we we had another one. We didn't have one last year, but we had one in 2019. And I think that for us, having those fundraisers gave us purpose that we could talk about Porter's life and raise funds and try to help push the clinical trials forward. I remember it was 2019. It was actually our anniversary dinner. Michael and I were sitting, I think we were at Vendatories. And so romantic. Uh, we got a text message from Dr. Martin. Um, and we had been in contact with him a little bit here and there. And he said that he wanted to give us the good news. And of course, we're like, what, what's going on? And he said that they had treated the first child at the National Institute of Health with the gene therapy that they had developed at Auburn. The little girl's name was JoJo. She actually ended up, she had the juvenile form. Porter had the infantile form of GM1, which is a little more aggressive. JoJo had the infantile form, so she was, I believe, eight or nine when she received her first treatment. I'm going to read you a statement from a doctor uh, that was involved in that clinical trial and what her response was when she saw JoJo at her follow-up visit. Now, remember, this is 2019. We met Dr. Martin in 2013. This was what the doctor said after JoJo received her first treatment, one-time injection. This was her six-month follow-up, I believe. She said, I was worried every bite she put in her mouth and stretched her neck and leaned her head back to swallow that she would aspirate. No question in anyone's mind that she needed a G-tube. On Friday, I watched her eat lunch. No coughing, no choking, no drooling. Picked up two pills from her tray with a three-point pincer grasp that was gone last time I saw her. Put them in her mouth and swallowed them. This is remarkable. We had hoped only to arrest the disease in this child, and now we get bonus points. And from that point on, I actually talked to Dr. Martin uh, a few days ago. So JoJo has, this is in 2019, so it's 2021. He said that she can't, she still has trouble speaking, but she can communicate with an iPad. Her mom asks her what she wants for lunch, and she can point on the computer little screen and tell her that she wants Chick-fil-A sandwich. She can t- She used to have to wear diapers. She does not have to wear diapers anymore. She can go to the bathroom on her own. She can eat on her own, and she's gaining weight on her own when all of that before, she potentially wouldn't have even lived a few more years, and here she is making progress that her brain is healing. And so since JoJo has gotten her treatment, there have been a total of five other patients that have received treatment. All of them are doing well. We've met um, one of the other little boys that was treated. We met his mom. We've also helped them get some things that they need. They actually live in California. But that says a lot. And I remember Dr. Martin telling me when we next time we saw him in person, he said, when I was sitting there and watching the gene therapy go into JoJo, he said, all I could see was Porter's face. And I said, well, that's what it was worth. That's, that's why we did it. That's exactly why we did it. So then no other child would have to, to go through what we went through whenever we sat in that doctor's office. And I'll, I'll close with this. It's one of the things that I think everyone judges their life on. And this is human nature, I would say, on the success of their children. I don't think that's anything negative. That's just what we do. I think for us, Porter's life, had purpose, and I think his legacy and these clinical trials and being able to see these kids potentially have a, a long life is every that's why we did everything that we did. 
Michael and I told ourselves in the beginning that we were going to be one of the ones on this journey that made it on the other side. We would be stronger than we were when we started. And I think that we made it there. Um, and it's because of Porter. He changed a lot of lives and he's touched a lot of lives. And I'm thankful that I was able to be his mom. We are so grateful to Sarah for just sharing a story that's probably hard to retell. And, you know, I'm just so grateful because I finished listening to her story and it just gave me such a new perspective on life and on my children's lives and that God has a purpose for them. He has a purpose for us, just like he had a purpose for Porter. And, you know, again, that's why we titled it The Hope We Needed, because, you know, that's a hope we all need. You know, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And Sarah just really made me reevaluate my eternal perspective by listening to her story. So I thank her so much for sharing. One of the things that caught my attention that really plays off what you just said is that at the end of her story, she says, most people, she's everyone, and I would say most people Mm -hmm. judge their life based on the success of their children. And you hear a story like this, and it does put it into perspective. How much weight do we put on our our children's successes to be a reflection of us. And what really matters is what we do for the Lord in our Mm -hmm. lives, how he works through us and how we allow that to happen, whether our life is Mm -hmm. two and a half years or Mm -hmm. 44 years and counting. That's right. That's right. And, you know, we we say at Storytellers, God is in the details of our life. And I was encouraged by how God showed up, you know, the man that she recognized (laughs) at church. I was thinking, okay, how's he going to come back in? Right. And then the fact that the Lord, you know, she was holding him when he had his first seizure. And then she said, I was able to hold him when he took his last breath. Mm -hmm. And as a mom, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that was a precious, sacred, very holy thing. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to Sarah's story today. And if this is something that spoke to you or you know a friend that needs to hear this story, please feel free to pass it along. We love when you're able to share stories and that these stories are able to bring hope and encouragement to you when you need it. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.